you all here once again. Um, as you uh, probably have realized by now, we are continuing our study verse by verse through the book of Judges, uh, for those of you who haven't been here uh, recently. So uh, we find ourselves in Judges chapter 10 tonight. Uh, so we're making our way, progressing through this, and um, just seeing a lot of what God is doing. Uh, Judges is an interesting book of the Bible. Uh, there's some things in here that are unlike any other area of Scripture, uh, but it's encouraging for us, I think, to be able to see God working in so many different ways uh, in areas where it doesn't seem that God is even apparent with people who may not even be seeking him. God is still able to bring about his purposes and his goals for the good of his people in spite of whatever is going on around them. Uh, so just kind of quick recap of where we're at. Uh, so Judges, again, is kind of the, the bridge from Israel living in Egypt, wandering the wilderness, conquering the promised land. And then in Judges, we find them settled in the promised land, uh, but not yet ruled by a king. And so God sends these different leaders, judges, to help them along the way. Uh, we see what's known as the cycle of Judges. We've talked about this a few times. Uh, so this is a lot of what the book of Judges centers about, that Israel is unfaithful to God, that they forget what God has done for them, how they got to where they are, how blessed they have been by God, and so they disobey God. They begin to worship the gods of the peoples around them to follow along with the lifestyle of those pagan neighbors they have that are not seeking God. And because of that, God sends someone to oppress them to bring difficulty and hardship as a consequence of their disobedience and to lead them to repentance. And so they're unfaithful. They have suffering or oppression. They repent. They cry out to God. Um, sometimes it's genuine repentance. Sometimes it's just a cry for help that they're tired of the circumstances and the situation. And then God sends a leader to deliver them from their enemies and from the hardships they face and bring them back into right relationship with him. And so usually after that happens, they return to worshiping God, uh, some sort of gratitude. And then a generation or two later, they forget it all and go back to doing the wrong things all over again, worshiping false gods, engaging in sinful practices, and not being the people that God had called them to be. And so we see that over and over through the book of Judges. It reminds us of how fallen mankind is. Uh, the story of Israel, the details are different, but the heart is the same as our story. That we all too often turn away from God, forget what he has done for us, and need to be led back to God. Uh, so that's some of what we've been talking about in this, um, that really Judges teaches us that God gives hope in the darkness, and God is very committed to rescuing his people, not just from external enemies, but from their own sinful hearts as well, that God is going to do whatever it takes to lead his people back to himself. And so that's very relevant for us here today, even in the midst of a very different setting, very different lives, very different time that we live, that the message is timeless and still has weight and bearing on us here today. 
Um, so our focus point this evening, kind of where we're, we're going to, to dig in and spend a little more time talking about, is that people are designed to worship. We see that throughout the scriptures, that mankind was created by God, designed inherently for that close relationship with him from the very beginning. Unfortunately, mankind often misplaces that worship, and misplacing worship distances us from our creator and from his blessing. And so we see that throughout the Bible, that people need God, that they're designed to worship God, to live in communion with him and to walk in his ways. And unfortunately, people oftentimes will try to fill that void that's meant to be filled by God with other things, uh, that they'll be looking for different means to find purpose, to find meaning, to find hope and satisfaction. And in Judges, we see that happen with their worship, that they begin worshiping the false gods of the people around them. And here today, we don't often find ourselves bowing down before images cast of bronze or different poles raised up as deities. But our society certainly has plenty of its own idols that people lay their lives before, that they center their identities around, and that they seek to find hope and purpose and satisfaction in. And if we get caught up in that same practice of worshiping the wrong things, that that's going to harm our relationship with our Creator. Uh, that we cannot live the life He has called us to, to its full extent. Experience the blessing that He desires to give us if we are misplacing our worship and putting it in the wrong places. And like many things in life, uh, so many problems come when people question something that God has made clear. We see that from the very beginning of history, the entry of sin into the world, that Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says to them, did God really say that? Did he really mean that you can't do you know, this one thing? You can't eat from this one tree? And we see them doubt God and what God had clearly commanded to them. And from that, we see the entry of sin and death into the world. And so in this passage tonight, we're going to see similar doubts raised. Did God really mean it when he said, only worship me? Does it really matter if you start to, you know, worship God and maybe some of these other gods too? It couldn't hurt that much. And we see the truth that straying from God, that worshiping anything but God has grave consequences. So we're going to start in Judges chapter 10 here this evening. Uh, this is a little bit shorter chapter, so it'll be a nice change of pace from uh, some of the, the longer ones we've been doing here this past few weeks. So Judges chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And so this chapter starts off with a new judge for us. Uh, last week we learned about Abimelech, the son of Gideon, who seized power without being led or commissioned by God, uh, who decided to name himself as king 
and brought a great deal of suffering and calamity upon the people of Israel and upon himself. And so after Abimelech had died, the people had gone back to their homes and um, forgotten all about his harsh rule over them. We're told that there arose two more judges here. We'll get to the next one in just a few moments. But, um, so the first one is Tola. We're not told a whole lot about Tola. Um, he was a man from the tribe of Issachar. He lived in Shemir in the hill country. And it says he judged Israel 23 years. And so this is a pretty significant period of time here, that this man judged or kind of led Israel, that he settled disputes, that he was kind of the go-to guy for 23 years. And then we're told that he died and he was buried. That's all we know. Um, Tola really sets a great contrast to his predecessor, Abimelech. That Abimelech, we're told, reigned, I believe, three years after he seized power. That he was king, self-anointed, for three years before God brought opposition to put him back in his place, to end his oppression of his fellow Israelites, and to at least bring some sort of order back into things. Three years. Uh, Abimelech gets this full, long chapter devoted to just all the problems and issues he arose. Um, that the author of Judges is recording a lot of these problems to help people see what happens when they stray from God. When people disobey God and turn apart from him, turn off of God's paths, things do not go well. That was a lot of the lesson of Abimelech. And so we spent quite a bit of time on that. Tola, all we know is he did his job, he did it for quite some time, and it was all summarized in two verses here in the Bible. And oftentimes in life, doing things the right way goes relatively unnoticed. That when we see a great disaster, some sort of calamity, a train wreck of ruling like that of Abimelech, that that gets attention, uh, that that's worth recording and remembering. But Tola, I think we can assume at some level, did his job well because there's nothing worth mentioning here. Israel was not oppressed during his reign. There was not any great unfaithfulness worth recording, uh, that he did not commit any grievous sins against God and against his fellow Israelites, that he merely led the people in the way that God had commanded him to unremarkably and ended his life at the right time there. And so we see that doing things the right way isn't necessarily something that's going to bring a claim, that's going to be remembered in greatness or in history. Um, when, I, uh, when I was growing up, my dad had a, a small construction business, still does. And so I spent all my summers, a lot of weekends um, in high school and college working with him um, building for a time he specialized on log homes in the mountains. So it was a great job, got to learn a lot of cool things, realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. But it's really neat seeing some of the projects that he led, um, projects that he built, um, that he was the type of guy where people would notice the houses he was building, the quality of the craftsmanship, and um, the size, you know, the, some of the, the ways that they stood out against um, the landscape and the other houses around them. And so he, uh, he did get some attention. He got a lot of work because of that kind of things too. 
Um, but there's a lot of people within the realm of construction that don't necessarily attract that much attention. Um, and when they do attract attention, it's usually not for the right reasons. You think of someone like a plumber or an electrician. Uh, they come in, you know, say on a new house, and if they do their job right, nobody's really gonna notice. You plug in your vacuum cleaner and it turns on. You flip the light switch that you expect to turn on the light in the hallway and it does. Uh, you flush your toilet and it works the way it's supposed to. I don't think most people go through these things and think, wow, that electrician was great. Like he put this light switch in a place that makes sense. The house didn't burn down. There's nothing flooding, nothing going wrong here. That these guys do their jobs, they do it well. And a lot of the time, it's not really noticed. Um, that they're just kind of behind the scenes, doing what they're supposed to, getting the job done, taking care of other people. And that's the way things are. And a lot of the time, I think our lives as believers are more like the plumber or the electrician than it is the foreman, the guy who's designing these great impressive buildings. I was uh, reading an article some time back written towards pastors. I believe it was actually directed at seminary graduates. But the author was saying that, you know, most of you guys, most of these men going into vocational ministry would go to a small to mid-sized church in some small to mid-sized town. Uh, that they would spend their life there ministering, preaching the gospel sharing God's word with people in a fairly unremarkable way, that they would spend years doing this. Uh, the church would hopefully see some growth and some changes along the way. And then they would come to the end of their lives. They would die. They would go to be with God, and they would be forgotten for the most part here on earth, uh, that most of them weren't going to build amazing, huge megachurches and write books that would be read by millions of people. And that's okay that God has called people to be faithful where he has placed them, to continue doing that hard work that he has given them, and to not necessarily expect great recognition from people for it. And that's all right. And so I think it's a good reminder for us as we go through the Christian life, uh, that like Tola, we might not do anything that seems particularly noteworthy. We might not be ones whose lives are memorialized in movies and in books. But if we're faithful where God has placed us, that's what really matters. And if we live a life that doesn't have a whole lot to be said other than that he or she did what they were supposed to and were faithful to God, what more could we ask for? What better way to be remembered? We see the next judge here in verse 3. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. So this guy, again, not told a whole lot about him. Uh, there are a few little details. Um, so we learn that he judged Israel 22 years, about the same amount of time as Tola, his predecessor, and that he had 30 sons who had 30 donkeys and ruled over 30 cities. Uh, kind of an interesting th 
thing to be remembered for. Um, so Jair, we can assume probably at some level, did his job fairly well like Tola. Uh, that there's no great apostasy or um, issues that are m remembered here. Um, that it sounds like Israel had a relatively good 22-year period while he was ruling. Uh, but also, it's noted that he had a whole bunch of kids. Uh, so the implication of that is he probably had more than one wife. Again, eh, kind of questionable. Um, and then also that each of his sons had his own donkey that he rode around on. So in this time, in this culture, uh, that meant you were pretty well off. Uh, that if you were able to afford this many donkeys, just so that your sons didn't have to walk. Uh, that if each of them was in a position where they were in the wealthier tiers of society, that that meant you were pretty well off. Each of these sons were told ruled over one of 30 cities. And so he had a pretty widespread area that he had control over. And that he used that, at least in some ways, for good. Um, so we see in these verses here, kind of a mixture of things. So often as we see in the Old Testament, especially in Judges, uh, that there's some faithfulness, there's some disobedience, some um, maybe not the best use of resources. And that's really so much of what Judges is about, that we see the people of Israel compromising in many areas, and we see the issues that arise from that. Um, so they're being at least partially faithful to God here, uh, but maybe not entirely, which could have been part of the lead-up to the issues we're going to see arise in the next few verses here. And in verse 6, we're going to see that cycle of the judges start all over again. So Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Ammonites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And so we see this same thing happen again. That it seems that you would think they would learn this lesson, but it keeps popping up over and over again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we've touched on this in past messages, but I think it's important to remember um, that good and bad are defined by God. That what they did was not evil in the sight of their peers. It was not evil in the sight of their neighbors. It was not evil because they decided it was or because it was against the law. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. That God is absolutely perfect and holy. That God has defined right and wrong for us. And when people stray from those boundaries that God has set, that there are consequences for it. That God is serious about his holiness. And evil 
goes directly in opposition to his holiness. That's so much of what we've been learning through the Old Testament, uh, that God cannot coexist alongside evil, and so he had to make a way for people to be right, to be holy as he is. So the people of Israel do, again, what was evil on the sight of the Lord. It says that they worship and serve all these different false gods. Um, not only are they worshiping just the gods of the Canaanites, they're worshiping the false gods of the different nations around Israel. So they're not just falling into the trap of you know, the, the idols their neighbors are worshiping. They're looking outside their borders to see what else is out there. They end up worshiping, it says, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. That they have been looking all around them and finding all these different gods that they can worship that aren't the one true God, that are not their God, the God who has been faithful to them, who has given them blessing after blessing, who has fought on their behalf, that they're worshiping all these other gods. And so this is a little bit of a change in the book of Judges, that up until this point, we see Israel, for the most part, um, falling into the false worship of the gods of the Canaanites that lived among them within the borders of Israel. And so now they're worshiping all these other gods, we're told. And then, um, not only are they worshiping these false gods, but it says at the end of verse 6 that they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so up until this point in the book of Judges, it would appear that the Israelites were kind of intermingling their worship, that they were trying to worship God and worship the gods of the Canaanites. So at this point... They've started worshiping all the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of these other nations around them, and they've completely stopped even trying to serve God. That they have forgotten their God and began to serve other gods in his place. And so we see another change in this next verse here. Verse 7 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Um, so we see God bring about different groups, different nations to oppress Israel in judgment here. Um, but this is relatively new here. That it says that God is angry with Israel, that his anger has been aroused because they have forgotten him and begun to serve all of these false gods. God is not happy about what is going on here. And so we're told... The consequences of this, it says in verse 7, that God sold them into the hand of the Philistines, the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. Not only that year, we're told it continued for 18 years after that. Uh, that in judgment, out of God's anger, for their disobedience and idolatry, that they are oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites for 18 years. We're told that uh, this oppression started in verse 8. It says, with the people who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites. And so if you remember in the book of um, Joshua, that part of the nation of Israel was allowed to settle on the far side of the Jordan River. Um, that They were given this plot of land that was separate from the original boundaries of the promised land. And so they're the first ones to have to deal with this because there's no natural boundaries between them 
and their enemies. So the Amorites are able to just march right into their territory, um, steal their crops, take their livestock, um, oppress the people, whatever it may be. That was easier for them to do. And as they go stronger, we're told that they crossed over the Jordan in verse 9 and fought against the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. So they're causing problems for a pretty large portion of the nation of Israel in judgment for their idolatry. It says that Israel was severely distressed. And we think about what idolatry looks like. One of the commentators I read when I was studying said that the essence of idolatry is enjoying the gift but forgetting the giver. And the people of Israel were happy to take God's blessing, but instead of letting that blessing lead them to worship, to a closer relationship with God, that they were just taking it for themselves and completely forgetting about the God who had given them the blessing. I think that certainly covers at least a portion of what's going on here. Uh, but idolatry it definitely has a, a bigger picture to it in the scriptures. Um, and when we read that, we see this come up over and over again, uh, especially in the Old Testament. So again, we have to remember that people were designed to worship something, that we all have an innate need within us to worship a higher power, to have something outside of us that gives us purpose and meaning, gives us hope and joy, that drives us in life, that gives us power to what we do. And really, I think in many ways, idolatry is giving the respect that God deserves to something besides God. Finding that purpose and that meaning in something else, finding it somewhere else than in God. I think so much of that is also tied up with identity, that what we worship defines who we are. Uh, that if our worship is in the right place, is on God, that we will find our identity in God, that we will be confident, firm, and stable in that identity because it is tied to an unchanging, eternal God. But if we place that identity somewhere else, then it's going to be a lot easier to have it shaken. It's going to be a lot easier to have it upset and to have doubts and questions come up because we are worshiping, we are identifying ourselves in something that is not eternal, that is not unchanging, that is not all-powerful. And so again, as I mentioned before, I don't think uh, most of us struggle bowing down before cast bronze idols or Asherah poles. Um, that doesn't seem to be too much of an issue in my day-to-day -day life, at least. But I think we've all struggled at some level with that misplaced worship. And it's interesting to think about when we have crossed that line into idolatry. What areas of life have we gotten a little close to doing the wrong things, um, to crossing over from what would be you know, respect or affinity to something, for something into worship of it? And so I think some good questions to ask are how we're dealing with whatever it may be, um, different things that arise in our life. Are we preoccupied 
with this, with this thing, with this activity, with this goal? Is this something that constantly dominates our lives, our thoughts, our emotions? Um, Is whatever it is that we're questioning, is it something that draws us closer to God or further from him? I think another great test is time. That time is a truly limited resource that we have only a certain amount of. How are we spending it? Is there something that is dominating our time more than God is? What about our money? I think Jesus taught on this quite a bit. You know, where where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are we putting our money towards? Is there something that is getting our money before we give it to God? Where is our attention at in life? Uh, So this can take various forms in our society that we see people oftentimes getting caught up in the worship of wealth, of success, of material possessions, of prestige and power. Uh, There's a lot of different things that can dominate people's lives, that can lead them to worship this thing, to find themselves in it in a way that they should only find themselves in God. Uh, An illustration from my own life. Uh, So I've mentioned this a few times, um, but I, uh, in addition to working here at the church, I also coach high school cross country and track. And uh, so before I got into coaching, I was an athlete myself. That's usually how the progression works. And I had some periods in my life where there were some issues with the way that I approached my own participation in this sport. Uh, That I got to a point where I felt like I was fairly good at it, I was having some success, and I saw God use that for a lot of good, that I saw him grow me through that, put me in positions um, where I I was able to learn and to to grow as a person and as a son of God. Uh, But I also saw some of that tension that existed. Uh, that there was that temptation to put my running before my relationship with God, um, to be able to focus my life around this thing instead of letting it be part of a life that was focused around God. And so I saw some ups and downs with that in my time as an athlete, um, just something that, you know, it was easy to let become consuming, to take up my time during the day, to take my attention during the day, to be the thing that was first on my mind when I got up in the morning and on my mind when I went to bed at night. The opposite of what God had commanded to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They were to speak of God when they lay down and when they rise up, that God should be the first thing we think of and the last thing we think of each day. Um, That I had put something else in that place and that's where I was finding my identity, and my purpose. And that shift can be pretty subtle sometimes, that we can be doing something and doing it well, that we can be doing it for God and for his glory. But if we're not careful, over time, we can slowly let that thing begin to creep in and take that place that only God is supposed to have. And so I think for a period of time in my life, I let that happen that I allowed my identity as an athlete, my goals, the things I wanted to accomplish, to supplant God and to put him down on the second tier. And much like the people of Israel, God was faithful to me as well in that situation. 
uh, that it wasn't easy, that it was painful, but God was faithful to bring about changes in my life, to bring hardship, to take that sport away from me, at least for a time, so that I could be reminded of who I was supposed to be worshiping, uh, that this was not who I was, that this is something I did. And so I saw God work through that, even though it was difficult. I think it's good for us to ask ourselves from time to time, what are we at risk of worshiping? What things around us have the potential to push God to the side? Is there something that we're doing, some activity we're engaging in that has the potential to dominate our time, our attention, our minds? Or some goal that we're seeking, something we're trying to accomplish, something we're trying to obtain. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that this can take form. And so I think it's important in that to think about what is it this could be and what safeguards am I taking against that. Um, So I had that experience in my own life as a runner. Um, So I'm at this stage, you know, doing different things. Um, I've been getting more um, for exercise and to, to cycling. That's kind of been my thing this last few months. Um, Very similar sport in a lot of ways. Um, But as I do that, I recognize some of those same tendencies. You know, that this has the potential to distract me in a way that it shouldn't. And so when I do that, I'm regularly praying to God, hey, God, help me to do this the right way. Help me to keep this thing in the right place. Let this be something that I do to draw closer to you, to worship you, and maybe even to connect with other people. Let me keep this as a tool, not as a goal. And so I think just the way we approach things, being able to recognize where those risk areas are, being quick to bring those to God, but also being willing to make changes to walk in obedience to God. Uh, that when we see that risk of idolatry coming up, that we are quick to recognize that. That we know that nothing should contest the place of Christ within our hearts. And so we need to be willing to do whatever we have to to stop that from happening. To continue walking in obedience to God. That we don't want to go down that road of trying to share our worship with God with something else. And end up being led away from God like the people of Israel were, that they started out with divided attention and ended up with their attention being completely consumed by their idols. That letting that creep into your heart leads down a path that we do not want to go down. Judges chapter 10, verse 10. We see the response of the people of Israel to the suffering that God had sent to lead them back. It says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I have saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. 
Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. These are harsh words here we see God give to the people of Israel. Uh, that they realize what they have done. The, they realize the wrong that they have committed. In verse 10, they cry out, We have sinned against you, God, because we have forsaken you and have served these false gods. That they realized that the sin they committed was a sin against God. And that's important for us to remember in our regular struggles with idolatry, with temptation, with sin. That sin is primarily committed against God. That it has effects and impacts on us and on other people. But the primary issue with sin is that it is an affront to a holy God. Uh, We're reminded of David's words in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, That in that psalm, he was confessing, repenting of his sin against Bathsheba. His sin against Uriah. uh, That he had committed adultery and murder. And those were grievous sins against people. But the worst part of it is they were sins against his God. And he had to recognize that and repent of it. We're also reminded of mankind's propensity to forget. That's something we see over and over again throughout the book of Judges, that God saves them and the people forget about it. And that's what God brings up here in these verses. Uh, He says to them in verse 11, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines? The Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and I saved you. God is reminding the people of Israel that he has done this already. They have been in this situation before, and he has rescued them out of it. But they forget. It says in verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods. That they continue to forget what God has done. It's so important for us to be constantly reminding ourselves of what God has done for us. That if we allow ourselves to get distracted by the idols of the world, if we forget how much God has brought us through in the past, that we'll grow distant from God. It will become easier to worship the idols of the world instead of the God of heaven. And so God responds in verse 13, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you. God tells them, you forgot about me. We've done this before. We've been through this multiple times. You have chosen deliberately not to worship me. Why don't you see how the gods you've chosen to worship do? Why don't you let them come to your rescue since you are so eager to worship them in my place? And I think one of the harshest judgments that God can give people is to let them be captured by their sin, to let them experience the full consequences of that. Uh, In Romans 124, 
we're told that God gave them, people living in sin, up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That God has chosen to allow people who are willfully walking in disobedience to experience the consequences of that. To just remove his hand and let them continue down the path that they have chosen. Which goes nowhere good. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about a man who is unrepentant of his sin, who is causing harm to the church. Paul says that he has chosen to deliver that man over to Satan for the judgment of his flesh in hopes of his repentance. But the judgment was to let him continue in his sin and see where it led. That one of the harshest judgments God can bring is to let people continue in their sin. And oftentimes, that's a worse punishment than we could ever even think up for what's going on. Uh, We're also reminded of how foolish it is to worship false gods. That Israel had chosen to turn away from the creator of the universe, the God who had visibly and dramatically brought them through so much, and they'd chosen to worship the idols of their neighbors. Uh, There's some great passages talking about just how ridiculous this is. Um, Isaiah chapter 44 and Psalm 115 uh, speak in detail to that. Psalm 115, starting in verse 4, says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. That this is what people worship. That they're so eager to not obey God that they are willing to worship things created by hands. Uh, These idols that cannot speak, that cannot smell, that cannot see. And yet they are bowing down before these things and saying, you are my God. And so... God is telling the Israelites, go to these idols, these idols that are made with hands, that can't speak, that can't taste, that can't see, that can't hear. See if they're going to help you if you're so eager to worship them. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. But the heart behind it is not that different than the heart we see in man today. If we are trying to place our hope, our identity, and our purpose in created things, it will only lead to disappointment. That nothing in the world can rescue us the way that God can. And when we reach hardship, when trials come, when difficulties arise, it would be foolish to look to the idols of the world to save us, the temptations that come, that only God can deliver us from our suffering, from our temptation, and from ourselves, that only the one true God can do that. And so the people of Israel realize this, um, so that they cry out to God, um, essentially asking him to remove the suffering they're experiencing, that they're tired of what's going on, um, that they want God to help them. God tells them, why don't you cry out 
to these false idols that you're worshiping. See what they can do for you. They realize that that is not going anywhere, that that will not accomplish anything. And so they cry out to God again in verse 15. They say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they ask God to deliver them. And then in verse 16, they put action into their words. Uh, That true faith has to be backed up by action. That repentance requires choices and actions. In verse 16, it says, They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. The people of Israel, at least in this case, were repentant. That they were not just sorry about what was going on that they were not just tired of the suffering that they were experiencing, but they were willing to turn away, to repent from the sins that they were engaging in and to follow after God, that they were going to seek to walk once again in obedience and right relationship with their creator. And we have to remember that repentance is not easy, that repentance necessitates change. That we don't just go before God and say, yeah, God, I'm sorry, I, you know, that wasn't so good. And then go back to doing the same thing over again. That true repentance means we change, we turn away from the sin, we turn towards God. That doesn't mean we won't have setbacks, that we won't have obstacles, um, that there won't be times where that sin returns or draws us back. But that we are continually doing all that we can to follow God in obedience, to walk after him, to trust in him to deliver us and to help us grow out of, away from whatever sin it is that's giving us issues at that time. I think a great picture of this we see in the New Testament is Zacchaeus. Uh, We just read about this as we were studying through Luke on Sundays not that long ago. Um, Zacchaeus, we're told, uh, goes to God or goes to Jesus and receives him with joy. Not only does Zacchaeus receive Jesus with joy, but he tells him, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's in Luke chapter 19. So Zacchaeus received Christ and his message, but he also realized that he had to change his ways. And so he did everything in his power to restore the wrongs he had done, to make those right. That the change in his life was evident by the choices he was making and the the way that he was living. Repentance is change. So the people of Israel repent, they put away the foreign gods, they begin to serve the Lord again, and we're told at the end of verse 16 that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. I think it's important for us to remember that God doesn't enjoy our suffering. That God, in this passage and many other passages of Scripture and in our own lives, is a good Father. That He is faithful to discipline us when needed. To draw us back to Him through whatever means are necessary. And He's doing this not because He wants to see us suffer, but because He wants to see us repent that God wants us to walk in obedience. He wants us to turn away from our sin. He wants us to experience the blessings of knowing 
and loving and living with him. But sometimes we have to experience discipline in order to do that. And so God is a God who cares, but he is also faithful to bring his people back to him however he needs to. Verse 17, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is this man, who is the man, who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so these verses really lead into chapter 11, uh, that God has heard his people, he has seen their repentance, and he has become impatient about their misery, that he wants to see them delivered out of that. And so the Ammonite army comes, they gather together. The people of Israel gather their army, and they say, who will lead us? Who is the man who will deliver us from this foe? And we'll see who God brings to do that next week in chapter 11. But for tonight, we're reminded again of that focus point, that people are designed to worship, and misplacing our worship distances us from our creator and from his blessing. And so we want to be quick to recognize those things. We don't want to fall into the same traps of the people of Israel and have to experience God's discipline to bring us back. That we want to walk in obedience, that we want to worship God alone and serve him only. That we let all those other things exist secondary to that main goal. And so for our uh, New Testament tie-in tonight, I'm kind of cheating a little bit here. Um, This is Matthew chapter 4, Jesus and his temptation. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. If you remember, sometime back our study in Deuteronomy, Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 here. So we have our Old Testament study in Judges, New Testament connection from Jesus and Matthew, which is actually an Old Testament connection from Deuteronomy. It's a great reminder, this is one book about one God and his desire to relate to his people. So let's do that. Let's remember to worship God and to serve him only, to not let the idols and temptations of the world distract us from that. Let's go to him in prayer. I thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. I thank you that you are faithful to do whatever you need to to bring us back to you, Lord. That you are faithful to discipline us when needed. That you are faithful to guide us. That you deliver us from our sins when we repent of them, Lord. And I thank you that you sent your son to die for us, God. That you desire that relationship with us so much. That you are willing to do that, to make the ultimate sacrifice that we could never do so that we would be able to live with you. I pray that you'd be with us as we go from here, that you would help us uh, to be quick to turn away from the sins, the temptations, the idols of the world, and to walk in obedience to you for your glory and that our lives might go better. We ask these things in your name.